Hi, I'm Chris Waddell. Every week we do a Q&A with interesting and accomplished members of the adaptive community to find how they persevered, how they innovated, how they built communities, and how they found solutions. Welcome to the Name Tags Chat Podcast. Welcome to the One Revolution Name Tags Chat. Today, I am joined by Samantha Bosco. Samantha was actually on one of our earlier chats way, way, way back. She is a cyclist, a Paralympic cyclist, double bronze medalist. I think we'll talk about what you won your first bronze medal by four one thousandths of a second. Was that right? Is that right? Yes, it is. But uh, but what what we want to talk about is is strategies. And Sam Sam has had a variety of different strategies in her life. And I also want to get to the strategies of being an athlete during COVID, during a suspension or a postponement of the Tokyo Games. When who knows? I mean, they've set dates and stuff like that. But a lot of these things continue to be fluid and how you're going to train. But let's take a little bit of a step back. I know we've talked about strategies before. Can you tell me what was your, what was your go-to strategy as you were growing up? <laughs> My go-to strategy was dealing with pain. <laughs> I don't think I ever truly realized that there was more than one strategy. I dealt with pain from... 11 years old on so I just had assumed that it was a given in my life and I would just have some level of pain every day and it was just a matter of dealing with the pain um, <laughs> until I beat myself to the ground <laughs> then I had to get new strategies <laughs> so with it you because part of part of backing up again as well the reason you were dealing with pain, so you had a, a bowed tibia and, and fibula, right? And, and so ended up having surgery and ended up with one leg shorter than the other. Is that where the pain came from or? Yes, it was, it was a bowed tibia. I don't, now that I think about it, I don't know if there was anything wrong with the fibula or if it just came along with, for the ride. Um, okay, fair enough. But I had a bowed tibia when I was born and when I was four, they took that part of my bone out. So it was shorter by two and a half inches. And then at 11 years old, I had surgery to lengthen that leg where I would end up with hip and joint problems later on in life. And that surgery, there were some complications and I ended up spending three years on crutches, had a dozen surgeries. And oddly enough, have a right leg have a right leg that looks kind of like it did when I was born. <laughs> but now there is there's actually more problem now than when I was born. Um, there's no cartilage in my ankle, so my ankle is pretty much bone on bone. And the way that uh, my foot came up, so I when I had surgery, I had drop foot, which basically looked like Barbie's foot. My toes were pointing straight down. And when my foot got brought back up, that's when I lost all the cartilage, but it also shifted both my tibia and fibula inward. So it, it looks kind of crooked, but it's mostly just my tibia slid down. So there's no real movement laterally either. Oh, wow. Okay. Now, how, how do you, I mean, you've said that there's, there's been fallout from the pain. But the thing is, as an athlete, and certainly as a cyclist, I mean, cyclists talk all the time about getting into the pain cave, right? I mean, it's like you're climbing the big hill, you just, you get into the pain cave and you're going to stay there. So it's like, it's a badge of honor. It's a source of pride. How do you deal with the pain? Do you, do you, you know, do, do you, do you dismiss it? Do you, do you distract yourself? Do you, do you meditate on it? What's, what's your, what's your source of dealing with the pain? I, I think that there are different types of pain. I think there is the pain that your brain is telling you you're in, that you're not necessarily in as much pain as you think that you are. Um, and I think that a lot of the times when it comes to cycling and being in the pain cave, it's that type of pain. Your body is capable of more, but 
your monkey brain is telling you that you can't do it or your legs hurt and you start to believe it. And I think that that pain I've always done well at beating because I've had such a strong will growing up and I have two great parents that taught me very well to be stubborn and determined and work hard. <laughs> so for me, uh, I, when I'm in the pain cave, I kind of enjoy it because I know that I'm doing something to get there and I'm doing something that's challenging myself. And it's, for me, it's about overcoming that challenge. And so like there are times in a race where I don't even think that I feel that type of pain. Like I'm already just in that mindset from the get-go that, okay, this might hurt, but it's only gonna hurt for so long and then it's better, or it's only gonna hurt because I'm thinking it's gonna hurt. And if I think of something else, then it doesn't hurt as bad. Wow, so, so do you feel like when it gets painful that you have an advantage? over the competition is that when it when it starts getting really painful you're like all right this is good this is when i get good yes actually now that you put it that way i think so because even today i i was just doing a virtual race um and there were like 10 different different sections and i sprinted for one of them and i was determined to be the fastest female sprinter in the race and after that sprint where I like got the green jersey, it was almost like I came alive and I was feeling better, doing better. I wasn't as tired and almost like a, a, a switch flipped in a way that I was like, the, the beast was let out, if you will. <laughs> this is like the boxing match where the first time you get punched in the nose, you're like, all right, so it's really happening now. This is good. Like I'm in it. This is I taste of blood. I'm coming for more. <laughs> Even if it's my own. <laughs> that is awesome. But it it has been it has been difficult for you. I mean, it's it's obviously it's a source of pride. But talk us through some of some of what you some of the 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 pitfalls along the way with regard to pain or with regard to you over overriding your your sense of pain. I definitely dove into the wrong side of pain and dealing with pain uh, where my body was hurting and I wasn't listening to it because I didn't differentiate between the two different types or all the different types of pain. So for me, if I had physical pain, that was a sign that my body was actually legitimately hurting and maybe I should stop, I would keep going and I would keep going, and I would keep going, and it did two things. It, it basically tore me apart to the point where I couldn't keep going anymore, um, and that happened with rowing, where I just kept going despite having knee pain from all the ankle pain that my ankle couldn't take going to my knee, and I ended up having to retire from the sport so that I could continue to walk when I got older. But at the same time, it kind of made my body stop telling me that I was in pain and needed to stop because I wasn't listening to it. So it would, I had to relearn how to listen to my body better and trust what my body was saying in that aspect of dealing with pain. And that took longer to get old, get through and to relearn myself than probably anything else that I've really tried to do. And we've got a, so for the audience, it might be a little bit confusing as well because we've been talking about cycling, you're a Paralympic cyclist, oh, yeah. but you were a scholarship rower yes. in college with one leg shorter than the other, right? Which, which gave you a bit of a, a symmetrical issue that, that caused the pain. Right, yeah. I didn't really know about para sport actually until I was 26, 25 or 26. Um, 
before that, when I got off crutches at 14 years old, I took up rowing as a form of rehab to keep what movement I did have in my ankle still there and fell in love with that because I was such a competitive person that I needed that outlet and I wanted to be an athlete. I've wanted to be an athlete my whole life. So I pursued rowing on the able body side. I'm still trying to figure out a way to say able body that doesn't sound so terrible because <laughs> I don't necessarily like that term, but I took up rowing and pursued it and ended up getting a scholarship to the University of Central Florida. And that is where the pain really started to get worse because I was spending more time in the boat than I was on the indoor rowing machines. And on the indoor rowing machines, the uh, foot plates where the shoes attach are separate. So I could adjust for the leg leg discrepancy because I could just move one forward so that I was almost like it was shifting my body slightly at an angle, but it wasn't doing detriment to me. In the boat, the foot plate is one solid piece of wood that's attached to a slide with wing nuts. So even though we tried to angle it, every time I pushed off, it wouldn't straighten out. So I was basically rowing at a disadvantage because it was making my leg length discrepancy more pronounced. Wow. And rowing, I mean, you talk about going into the pain cave. Rowing is a sport of the pain cave because you're effectively just an engine, right? I mean, you just, this is it. Go and go as hard as you can and then keep going. And, and, and it's going to hurt, like your hair is going to hurt and your teeth are going to hurt and all of this stuff. So, I mean, you, you've chosen sports where, where your, <laughs> your superpower is helpful, right? That, yeah. Yeah. I, you know, when I started, when I started rowing, it's funny because my dad has pretty much been my training partner in all sports. When I took up rowing, he started rowing. So we were both kind of rowing at the same time. And then when I retired, he got back into bikes also. So we were riding together. But when I was rowing, he was always telling me before I started doing a, a 2K or a 4K test, which are 2Ks are springtime races and 4Ks are fall time races. And he always had to do a test at least twice a year on both of them. He would always tell me, you don't have to breathe for the last two minutes. And so that's always been my mindset is that you just go so hard that even like you're just dying. And by the last two minutes, you just want it to be over. And you, all you can think about is when is it over that you just stop breathing because you're trying to go so hard because if you go harder, technically it should be over sooner. <laughs> so I kind of have carried that over into cycling <laughs> for better or worse, I guess. <laughs> That is awesome. So you don't have to breathe for the last two minutes. Okay. I'm, I, and is that good advice? Is that, is that valid advice? For some races, yes. Um, most races, no. <laughs> I'm, I've had to relearn breathing strategies even because cycling breathing strategies are so different from rowing breathing strategies that I'm almost putting myself at a disadvantage sometimes because of that time I spent rowing. Like I have so many positives from rowing that carry over to cycling. And number one being the ability to suffer and not even feeling the wall, if you will, that most cyclists say they hit during a race or even runners sometimes. But I also have those disadvantages that I'm working on, but I feel like that's also kind of helps be a strategy of mine to realize that there are weaknesses that I can work on and not necessarily beat myself up over it, but actually work towards making those areas better. You race in a variety of different races in cycling too, some of which really are sort of similar in some ways to, to rowing where you're doing, is it a 1K or is it a 2K that you're doing on the, on the track? So I do a 3K on the track and a 500 meter time trial, which is really a sprint for two laps, but all the 500 meters on trial. <laughs> right, which is 500 meters, so it's just a little bit shorter than 1K then. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, but then you also do a time trial on the road and, and a road race. 
Yes. So these are like vastly different races. Oh yeah. Training, yeah. power systems, everything. I mean, so so the shortest is your 500 meter. And you said that's just a sprint. And this is a fixed gear, right? So fixed gear. Fixed gear from a standing start, get up to speed and go as fast as you can for two laps. Yes. And it's Do you have an idea what speeds? Event. What's that? I said and it's my worst event. <laughs> it's your worst event. Okay. Well, we're talking yeah. about it. It's okay. Uh, <laughs> So how fast do you go? How like what kind of like when you say you get up to speed, how fast are you going? Oh man. Is it is it all wattage for you guys now? I you know, I've done so many that I can't even recall speed for the 500s cuz for me a 500 is like a training day and an opener for my 3k because a 500 meter event on the track and the kilo for the guys which is four laps it's all about having an explosive start and i just don't have that and while i'm working on it on some level i know that that never will be my forte um, so i typically just focus on the time because that's really all i can remember and that's that's what i shoot for is to always get a pr every time i do it so even if i'm not as high up in the results as I would like to be, I still have a PR or a chance to be better in an event that I know isn't necessarily a metal contention event for me. How fast will you do a 500 then? Do you remember that? I've recently broke 40 seconds, which is pretty big for me, but it's still four seconds or so off the winning time, <laughs> which wow. in two laps is so big of a difference because there's not that much time to make up four seconds. You basically have to make up two seconds a lap, which is over 30 miles an hour. Right. So you're over 30 miles an hour. So two seconds is like, you know, probably 20, 30 meters. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's not as close as when I won my 3k <laughs> by a long shot. It's almost, it's a quarter of a track actually just about is it is that much okay well that makes sense yeah yeah four so yeah so it's yeah ten ten percent of okay so yeah uh so okay so with so with the 3k you do the 3k on the track as well and can you describe what the track is like too because this is i mean you're in the velodrome right this it's pretty cool uh, <laughs> your definition of cool, cool is probably the same definition I have of scary, if that's the case. <laughs> uh, the track, when I first went, scared me. And sometimes if you don't go for a long time in between sessions, I still get that feeling of being slightly scared because it's a wood track, sometimes concrete, but most of the time it's a wood track because it's an indoor track that is 250 meters a lap and it has an embankment so that the sides are angled but there's two straights and then there's a turn basically a u-turn and the u-turn turns are angled at anywhere from 42 degrees to 47 degrees and it's like being on a wall effectively yes. Yep. yes and it's about two stories high so you don't typically try to think about how high up you are when you're like all the way at the top of the track and usually the events that we do you're at the bottom but when we do the scratch race which is basically a mass start event on the track it's very 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 intimidating <laughs> and so Okay, I mean, we want to get to the to the 3K, but the scratch race. So this is like like the, the whoever's last, right, to the finish line. You're plucking that person out of the field. Is that the scratch race or? No, I wish that's the elimination race. Uh, uh, the scratch race is basically you go for a set amount of laps, and first one across the line wins. So uh, we'll okay. do 40 laps, 20 to 40 laps, depending on which event. 
Okay. So you're racing a variety of events on the track too. And, and, and so bronze medal in the 3K in Rio. And, and how does that work, right? So, so this is just a match race, right? Yes. So on the track, we have the luxury of getting to have suffering in the morning and the afternoon session if you're lucky enough to make the afternoon session. <laughs> so the 3K individual pursuits, you have a qualification in the morning for us, which is basically going against the clock. And then the third fastest and fourth fastest times will meet up again in the afternoon and race each other for a bronze medal called a bronze medal round. And then first and second, we'll race for the gold and the silver called the gold medal round. So when I was in Rio, I, we kind of went into Rio with the idea that I had potential because I was getting faster lap times than I was at the beginning of the year. And so I missed, I skipped opening ceremonies because our race was the next morning and I wanted to do well. So I did everything I could. I went to bed early. I had good food for dinner, all the works so that I could give it my best that day. And I qualified third and kind of shocked myself <laughs> and maybe everybody else. <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> but I qualified third. And so I went back to the athlete village, hung out, got out of the velodrome because a lot of times the velodrome can also take out your energy if you're spending a lot of time there when you're not racing. Uh, fluorescent lights, everything's, you can see everything, it's going around so fast, it's just mentally exhausting. And so I went to the athlete village, hung out and came back and raced the bronze medal match against a girl from Poland and was doing very well. I started out super strong, probably too fast. <laughs> and I had a good advantage on her with six laps to go and then that slowly dwindled and I ended up beating her by four thousandths of a second. Just long enough for me to look up and see that I finished first before it switched to photo to double check. <laughs> <laughs> and it was okay so how do you know how you're doing because you start on opposite sides of the track right so you you don't have a, a relative sense of where you are with respect to the other rider but you're getting you're getting splits as you come along is that how it works yeah my my coach at the time actually we did had a different strategy typically it is lap splits because you want to maintain a certain speed and you go in knowing what pace you want to have to stay on target. For that particular race, my coach and I decided that we were going to do a slightly different strategy where he was going to tell me if I was up or down. And <laughs> he told me I was up and I was up and then I started to come down, but I was still up. And then all of a sudden it went from giving me plus or minus to go Sam, go Sam. And then the go Sam's got louder. And then in my head, I was like, Where's the bell? Because the bell is the signifier for the last lap. And then once you cross the line, it's typically a gunshot from one of the race guns. And I was just dying to hear that. And I was just dying and hoping that I was going to hear it first. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so that's the mentality of the coach. This is like the, it's like the Seabiscuit kind of thing. I remember reading that, that book about Seabiscuit and he had to see the other the other horse and if he saw the other horse like there's no way he's gonna lose <laughs> right right yeah dragging you in there so you do you do these races on the track the 500 the 3k in the paralympics and then you do the the road race which is typically how long is your road race uh to the road race is typically two hours roughly two hours it's about 35 to 40 miles give or take Right. So you've got 35 to 40 miles on the, uh, on, on that and, and, and a totally different deal, right? I mean, it's because it, you also on the road, you have your, you have your time trial, which is generally shorter. And, and that's where you're trying to figure out how fast you can possibly go and continue to go fast. But, but then the road race becomes that much more tactical, right? Where you're in the pack and then, 
can you sprint a hill? Can you can you break away from the pack? Can you do something? So, how do you how are you able to do all of those races at the same time? And are, are your competitors doing the same races, or people or are people specializing? People are starting to specialize now. When I first got into paracycling, there was so few opportunity that you had to be good at both. Um, but now it seems like the competition is getting even more intense that you have to start specializing in something or you're just going to be mediocre and everything. And if you want a chance to get on the podium, you have to just pick one or the other and start to specialize. I love doing all of the events that I can do. And I love the time trial and the 3k. And for me, they kind of complement each other. So that's become my specialty. Uh, when I first started, it was road racing, so it's not lost on me that it's not road racing anymore. But for me, I like the time trial and the 3K because it's all about what I put into it. And if I put the best I can into it, then I have a decent result because of just me and not because somebody else did something that didn't go right for them and I just benefited from it. Like a road race is so much strategy that goes into it also, but a time trial, you're racing the clock by yourself, nobody else around you, unless you're passing somebody or somebody's passing you, you're by yourself and it's all about you. And I like that aspect of it. I like that I have a little bit more control in it, controlled chaos, I guess. <laughs> But it's also, it's a race of purity as well, right? right. That, right? that it is based on who you are. And granted, based on your on your start position or something like that, you could get affected by elements where maybe the wind comes up later on or earlier or whatever, something like that, or, or it starts raining. Or I mean, cyclists, I think, have to be the toughest athletes out there. Just watching it on television and the guy goes and falls and basically almost like scrapes all of his skin and his suit off and jumps right back on or you know that guy that went through the through the barbed wire in the tour de france and stuff oh and, yeah, yeah no oh yes yes i <laughs> road rash is not fun uh but you definitely keep going and i've i've learned that pretty much the hard way but for me like i don't know it's the one time that I feel my most powerful and I live for those moments because I like to have that feeling. And I like, I like knowing that I gave something my all and whatever the results may be, I gave it my best and I'm working to always be better because there's always opportunity to be better. No matter how far you come, there's still more room for growth and more room for opportunity. How does that work on a daily basis? So is this, is this what you're targeting when you're training every day? No, it's definitely a, an ebb and flow of that kind of aspect. There are times when I'm riding really hard and I go for it. And there are even days when I can feel in my bones that I need to do something harder. And so I'll like, right now I'll jump on Zwift, which is an online training platform where you can have virtual races. So I'll jump on there and get a race in just for that kind of uh, push to exert myself or like we'll go, I'll go up with my husband up GMR, which is a local climb that's about 40 minutes for us. And I'll just suffer the whole 40 minutes and try to just time trial as fast as I can up to the top. But then I'll have days where we ride a coffee, which is four miles away and then four miles back. And that's literally my training day. So it's definitely an adjustment in learning how to listen to my body. And at the same time with what's going on now, knowing that I don't have to be as fit as I should be this time of year, but also not losing too much fitness that I can't be even more fit for the Tokyo games. Let's, uh, we're going to get to that. But we, we've been talking a lot about the pain and about your ability to manage pain and 
probably also your love affair with pain, I think is, is some of what it sounds like. What was the, what was the breakthrough for you though, on the strategy side uh, of being able to differentiate on pain? My breakthrough was meeting my husband, Andrew, at a bike race in 2013. Um, he's also a cyclist. He is an able body cyclist who has been racing since he, he was 17, I think, maybe 15. He got into road racing. He got into road cycling at 15. I'm not sure if he started racing at 15 or 17, but around there. Um, and so he always had a professional bike fit. And when we first met and I would come out to visit him and we would go train together, he would see how much pain I would be in the next day after having a hard ride or even during the ride. Sometimes I would have ankle pain and sometimes knee pain. And he knew that I didn't have to be in that much pain. I just didn't know how. And I'm very stubborn to the point where I can ask for help because I just assumed like, it was normal and that was my normal. And then he pushed me to get a professional bike fit, which basically just takes your handlebars, your saddle, your shoes, and adjusts the bike to fit you. Kind of like getting a pair of jeans that fit or a pair of shoes that fit. If something's too big, you don't use them. Buy the ones that fit you. So for a bike fit, it essentially gives you the right pair of jeans. It's interesting because a lot of us think of, of bikes is sort of being like mostly one size fits all. And maybe, maybe there's yeah. a little bit of a difference, but yeah. not necessarily talking about like how far out your, you know, how long your stem might be for your, right. for your handlebars or whatever, so that you can get one into, into, into a comfortable position that's going to keep you safe. Right. Right. But two and is, is going to maximize your power as well. Right. Right. That's, I think for me, that was the biggest difference because my dad had the old school traditional types of fitting where you have like a bolt attached to a piece of string and you adjust your pedal based off where your kneecap is by using the string and holding it up and seeing where the bolt falls across your shoe so that it's in the right spot for the cleat. Like all these old school tricks, but then technology came about and new train, new theories of thought came about and now that my husband actually does professional bike fits for a living, you see all the differences based off your own genetic makeup. Like for me, when I first started, I had shims on the bottom of my shoe, between my shoe and my cleat where it attaches to the pedal. And I was essentially creating a high heel with how much buildup I had between my cleat and my pedal because it kept me at an angle where I was wearing a high heel. And now I have some of it inside the insole of my shoe so that my foot's a little bit more flat so I can push down on the pedal with more power. And it's all these little things that you don't realize because you don't have that knowledge, but I never asked. I never had asked anybody for that help. And then when I got the bike fit and I started riding and started having less pain with the bike fit, I realized that I was frankly stupid for never asking for help in the first place because I didn't have to deal with pain and I didn't realize I didn't have to deal with pain and it is way nicer. <laughs> because there, there is going to be pain all the time. Anyway, I mean, part of being a cyclist and pushing yourself the way that you do, and you said you do have your easy days because that's also smart in your training where you have to recover because if you're just beating yourself up, you're, you're not going to be good. You, you feel like you've done a lot of work, but you're not going to actually be good. But then you're actually getting healthy. You're getting stronger as you're moving along as a result of, of the bike fit. How did that transform your life? What did that, what did that feel like? I mean, it's, like, it's almost like you're leaving, you're leaving a great friend and your biggest enemy behind as you as you go forward like how do you make this departure I don't know that I've ever really thought of it that way I it opened the door for me I definitely try to live more in the moment and not get so caught up on past inadequacies I guess um, because I 
did used to be that way. I was very much a perfectionist, so I would notice when I did something wrong. But being able to ask for help kind of opened the door to being okay not knowing and being okay with making mistakes. And it opened the door to growth in my own mindset and strengthening my mindset because I was able to A, focus on the good type of pain, the pain that you want to feel. Because essentially, like when you're training or when you're like when you're lifting weights or when you're working out, you're essentially tearing your muscles apart for growth. So there's some type of pain that's good because it helps you grow. But at the same time, it allowed me to kind of leave the, the wrong way of thinking about pain behind, almost like I was letting go of excess weight because I was letting somebody else help me carry it. Did you dread it when you were, when you were training and racing like that, like the knee pain or the ankle pain or that kind of thing? Like it's, it's coming or did you, or was it just part of what you did? Yes and no. I think for me, it was more of a, a mental hurdle than a physical hurdle. Cause I kind of had always had that feeling of knee pain. I had just assumed that that was going to be the case. I did what I could to lessen the pain, but it was more of a mental hurdle for me. I felt like I was a burden. I felt like I almost had days where I was like, why is this happening to me? Why did this have to happen to me? I didn't, I want to just be normal. Like I want to just be able to go for a run even. So for me, it was more mental than physical. Like I never truly dreaded feeling pain because I knew it was going to happen. And I knew like it would be a little bit better throughout the day and like humid weather, it's better and cold weather, it's not so good. So you kind of take the precautions, but the mental side of it can just hit you like a a stack of bricks or a stack of books and you don't see it coming. So it was more mental for me than physical. Is there the grind too, where you're like, I think I'm doing damage to my body and to my potential future or not? Or did you, <laughs> or did, or did that not even occur to you? No, I, knew it. I just kept doing it. Like I tried to run for so long after I had surgery that I definitely was to a point where I knew I was doing damage to my knee, but I still did it. Like I knew that it was going to happen and me in 10 years is really going to be super mad at 20 year old Sam for doing that. But at the time I wanted to do it. And so I pushed myself to do it because I thought, Hey, I'm always going to have pain. Might as well try to enjoy use of my leg I have now before it gets worse. <laughs> are you, are you different now than you oh, yes. were? You oh are. yeah. 100%. Yes. Yeah. If, like even today when I did, when I rode earlier, I had started getting a little bit of knee pain yesterday just from sitting in a funny position, which is my own fault. But I took it upon myself to end my ride shorter than I typically would have like old Sam would have kept going old Sam would have tried to do like four hours on the trainer with her knee starting to hurt an hour in and just keep going me now I know that that's not going to benefit me and it's going to set me back in my training and at the same time I'm also doing preventative measures like I'm spending more time in physical therapy doing all of the rehab if you will to lessen the chance of having a catastrophic injury so it's a long-term plan as opposed to, I have to win every single day because if I don't, then I'm a failure. How has this long-term plan changed? Because like the Olympics, the Paralympics were postponed in Tokyo. So you were supposed to be, I mean, you were probably getting close to hitting your taper as you're, as you're ready preparing for the Paralympics and going to feel as strong as you've ever felt and all of this. I mean, the stuff where you put all the money in the bank, right? With all that training and then you're going to benefit from that, all that training you put in the bank. What are you doing now? How, how do you approach this now with, with COVID-19? Are you allowed to ride with people? Are you, uh, what do you do? It's gotta be a little, it's gotta be a huge change. 
it's interesting because I've said this a few times. I think it's been a blessing in disguise for me because the beginning of the year, I definitely had some mental hurdles that I had overcome leading into uh, the beginning of all the COVID pandemic stuff happening that when it hit, there was kind of that, we don't know if it's gonna happen, but it might happen, so we'll keep training. So I had definitely had better fitness and I was definitely working towards being more fit for Tokyo than I was for Rio. And then, but at the same time, like I was learning more about myself and more things that I liked about myself that it gave me the opportunity to tackle the mental aspect of things and the mental aspect of being an athlete and having that strong mindset. So then when stay at home orders started to take effect and the weather in California started getting all dreary and raining and which not typical, well, I guess it's typical for January, but not typical for California. Um, I spent more time inside riding and kind of just falling in love with the training aspect of things and riding how I felt that day because there was nothing to train towards. It was just a matter of trying to keep some fitness and trying not to peak. And then at the same time, trying not to train so much that you have that burnout sooner and then you stop training and then you're even worse when you start training again for next year. Um, so for me, it was a chance to not have a specific game plan, a specific week of training, a specific training ride. I don't have to do intervals if I don't want to. I can go do 100 miles on Sunday if I want to. And I kind of fell in love with riding a bike again and fell in love with being a cyclist because I got the chance to do the rides that I wanted to do or do the rides that were making me happy in the moment. So I feel like for me, while I've maintained fitness and I'm definitely looking forward to racing and traveling, I have grown mentally and physically throughout the process. So I'm, I'm looking forward to Tokyo next year. I'm going to be even stronger than I would have been this year. I know it. So the mental side was that you needed to fall back in love with the sport. Is that the, is that what the big thing? And did you, or, or was it, or were there other things? Yeah, it was, it was a little bit of that. Um, I've never not loved cycling, but I spent a chunk of time after Rio and coming home from Rio and kind of having that experience of being at a loss from not having a set plan or something to train towards because it was done and completed and I did what I wanted to do. Um, so I was kind of running away from identifying as a cyclist. I, whether that be from societal pressure or other people around me, uh, getting new cars, houses, having kids, the, all those kinds of things that you typically have when you grow up, I guess. Um, so I was kind of running from being a cyclist. I, I felt like I had to get a college degree. I felt like I had to have my own house and my like put myself in debt, if you will. And so for me leading into this year, it was kind of a turning point in where I was like, I love being a cyclist. I love getting to ride my bike. I love getting to do this. If that means I don't have this because I can ride and I can race, I'd rather race. And so the mental hurdle for me was not focusing on how I should be perceived and how society thinks I should be perceived versus what's making me happy and how I want to perceive myself. Well, that's a fairly big thing to to confront the not having to be perceived the way the society said that you need to you know not having to be who society said you have to be but being comfortable with who you are and embracing being being a cyclist it sounds like that will empower you moving forward that you're going to be way more powerful oh i feel like it already has i feel like the second that i was like you know what 
I love being a cyclist. And if people don't like it, oh, well, because it's my life. If I'm wrong, then I'll make the mistake myself. <laughs> but like, it opened up the door where I started seeing more things that I loved about myself or doing more things that I loved about myself and started having a better confidence and a more solid attitude towards life in general. And if something's not making me happy, I can gracefully walk away from it because there are other opportunities in my life. So effectively, you're healthier. I mean, this is, yeah. we're coming back to this theme a little bit, right? That, you know, you get your bike fit, you're healthier. You're getting, getting your head fit, you're yeah. healthier. This is good. So is there, is there any competition? I mean, it, that has to be hard where you effectively, you'll go, I mean, what? Six months, eight months, a year, potentially, without, without any competition? Yeah, it's looking like it's going to be just under a year, probably. At this point, knock on wood, it doesn't get worse um, before the next competition because all of real life racing is virtually, <laughs> real life racing is basically canceled. But there are virtual races, and I've been doing a few of those, but it doesn't quite get the race aspect of cycling because uh, it's mostly like a time trial on a bike even though it looks like you're racing against other people you're just racing for strength and speed but my husband keeps me competitive because he can still out sprint me and it's annoying <laughs> he finds ways to keep me competitive and to push me when I need to be pushed <laughs> bragging rights in the house that's important stuff oh, yeah yeah. Yep. Yep. I got. It definitely keeps me on my toes because I've had to figure out ways to keep him on his toes, like attack early to try to get a city sign sprint and beat him, or like just lose. <laughs> Is this what you end up talking about over dinner afterwards? Uh, if we're talking. <laughs> <laughs> Have you had any contact with the team while you've during COVID or? Yeah, I've kept in touch with some people. And then we have a, a Thursday virtual time trial series that I've done off and on. Uh, more consistent in the beginning when it first started. Not as consistent when it started to get warmer out because I do have the luxury of being able to ride outside. And since I live with my husband, I can ride with him. Um, but there has been that contact and I keep in touch with some of my teammates. So. There, it's not lacking as much as it could be on that aspect. Okay, but but you don't have you don't have a ton of like check in kind of stuff or specific specific rides or events or are you getting any any um, any sense of coaching right now in terms of like building a, a particular training block or or anything or any targets that you're looking at. I keep in touch with my coach. I send him my stuff, all my workouts throughout the week. And if there's something that looks off to him or if I'm feeling like I need something else, he'll adjust. But for the most part, it's just having fun and challenging myself with my own rides that I create. Like this summer has been the summer of century rides. We've been, my husband and I and a couple other people um, have been doing Sunday rides to the beach, which is about a hundred miles, or we'll go to like, we got to go to the Hollywood sign, which is the first time I've gotten to see the Hollywood sign since living here for five years in California. Uh, or like the Queen Mary, we found ways to have a good goal during all of this that it doesn't necessarily feel like I'm missing out on having something to train for, even if it's going to the Hollywood sign. <laughs> But I keep in touch with him. Yeah, I keep in touch with him. It, it's it's an interesting thing, I think, for a lot of people as well, right? Is that you have to keep it interesting. You have to, like training, you can do the same thing over and over again. I mean, it's like eating oatmeal for breakfast every single day, right? It's like, I mean, and, and there are definitely people who do that. I, I'm not one of them, but, but you could, there are people who do that. But 
but you're going to, your body reacts to that, right? And our body goes and, and, and basically can adapt to whatever challenge or stress you put on it. But then, then it just kind of plateaus. Right. So you have to keep shaking things up. And that's, I think that sounds cool. And I imagine it's a pretty good climb up to the, up to the Hollywood sign as well. Right. Yeah. I didn't realize it was going to be that steep of a climb <laughs> going along the side. And frankly, I was kind of disappointed because once you get up to the high, highest part that you can get to at the Hollywood sign, they have this big gate from behind the sign that is far enough away that you can't even really get a good view of the Hollywood sign. So I was kind of disappointed that I climbed all the way up there for not as great of a view as it was at the bottom. <laughs> but I don't mind the climb up. It, it was more of the, it was a challenge to get back down because of the steepness and the amount of people that were there. So that part was interesting, but it kept it fun. It keeps it fun. Amount of people, so tourists or other people riding their bikes? Mostly tourists, mostly people hiking. There's been a lot, a lot of people hiking since all of this started happening, which is great to see. And a lot of people, a lot of people started riding bikes, which is super awesome also. It's, it's really interesting and a variety of different bikes, right? I mean, you get a lot of the e-bike stuff going on now, but there are people who are out there, right? It's, a, it's kind of a fun thing to see people on bikes. Yeah, yeah, it's super fun. And growing up in the mountain bike world, like we were in, in Alaska too, like we were all kind of a close-knit family type atmosphere. You said hi to everybody, you encouraged everybody. So when this first started and you saw more people out and more people were waving to you, I was just so much fun and so surreal that kind of nice. <laughs> it's got to be that weird thing. It's like, hey, I'm waving to you, but don't get too close. We're going to stay, We're going to keep our social distancing even, which is which is obviously really hard when you are drafting off of somebody because if you're six feet behind, you're not getting any benefit from the draft of the person right. in front of you. There's no real drafting anymore. Crazy. It's crazy. And then we'll do rides and most of the rides there are sections where you go your own pace, so you're never with anybody that you, like, Andrew will ride off, and I'll never be with him until we get to the top of the climb, or the section that we stopped going our own pace, kind of, but even with cycling, like, you have to be more than six feet, because of how fast you can go in the wind, it's almost like you're following a semi-car on the freeway, and you have to give even more space, that's, that's been a challenge also <laughs> but it is fun you can say hi and at the same time you can give the stiff arm like keep your face over there i'm over here we're good <laughs> we're doing this to be healthy yes. let's stay healthy continue to get healthy what are you going to take out of this i mean it seems like there have been a few things that you've taken out of it already that you're you know sort of more uh, you know, more at peace with, with who you are as a person, as a cyclist, but are there, are there other things that you're taking out of this time that you will, have you been able to do things that you wouldn't have done otherwise that might not even be cycling oriented? There are a lot of things that I'll probably take out of this. I haven't necessarily had time to do other things that I wanted to do. Um, I did want to learn how to make candles, for example, but I started working with a nonprofit, uh, just at the beginning of the summer that has taken up a lot of my time when I'm not training. So I haven't had the chance to do that yet. So for me, a lot of what I'm taking from it is just mental attitude and just enjoying the simple things in life and enjoying the time that you have because you really don't know how much time you have. No. And right now, I mean, especially as an athlete where, you know, the athlete clock is ticking and not knowing when you can get back to a normal athletic life where you're training and you're racing and you're traveling and you're doing all of these things that are in season. Will you, will you approach it differently when you get to, when, when you get back to, you know, to, to what, you know, whatever we consider to be a regular life? Probably. I think for sure that 
I'll go into things with a different mindset and that in, a, in and of itself is approaching it differently to me just because it puts me in a better place from the get-go. Are, are you looking forward to that? Are you looking forward oh, yeah. to, to getting back to like the regular life? Yes. Yeah. I'm looking forward to racing. I'm looking forward to travel. I'm looking forward to smashing some legs. <laughs> I'm looking forward to all of it. It's just, you definitely appreciate what you have when you don't have it. Yeah. I mean, that's, that is the challenge with this, isn't it? Because it's also, I mean, it affords you a bit of an opportunity to take a step back and sort of, and have a more global view, something that you would not have had if you'd been in the midst of training. It's just, okay, how am I doing? How am I doing compared to how I think I should be doing? And it's like, boom, 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 boom. Each step along the way, you need to, you need to hit the marks that you need to hit. And now it's kind of like, okay, take a little bit of a step back and look at yourself in a more holistic kind of way. How can, how can you approach this? And then, and then how can you be prepared? Cause, cause sometimes it is, I, I think that people don't realize just how exhausting it is to be in season, just mentally more than physically. Yeah, totally. 100%. And the, the crazy part is that with track in the fall, winter time and road in spring, summertime, we almost don't ever get an off season. So this is like the first extended off season I've had in seven years. Wow. And I think the only other time that I've had an off season before that was because of injury. So I'm kind of, yeah, I'm enjoying this. <laughs> I'm enjoying it. But at the same time, I'm super excited to see how much further I can go next year and how much more fit I can be going into the games next year. Have you been in touch with any of any of your competitors or anything? Any people throughout the world and compared notes with them? No. Not really, no. No, everybody seems to kind of just be huddled in their own little corners of the world. Oh, that's interesting. So there's not like a, you know, the Facebook kind of thing or something like that where somebody's saying, hey, this is what I'm doing. Maybe people are maybe people are keeping everything quiet, but it'll be, it'll be really interesting to compare notes once, yeah. once everybody emerges. What did you do? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It would be super interesting. Like I've seen a couple of competitors and friends post on social media, but there hasn't necessarily been that conversation of how has it been for you kind of thing. I have a friend who lives in Italy and that's pretty much the, most of what I've gotten is interacting with him and seeing how it was for him. And it was pretty significant over there. Yeah, they were on total lockdown. Yeah. Yeah. It, they couldn't even go 200 meters from their house without having actual reason paper to do so. Yeah, it, it is crazy. And there, this will be a period of time where we look back and say, okay, that was the right decision. That wasn't the right decision. But in the midst of it, it's it's really hard to be able to do it. Have you been have you been playing at all with your bike handling skills, like going back and forth between road and mountain, or 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 is it been strictly road? Strictly road. Okay. I have my time. I have my time trial bike on my trainer, so I have been in my aero position and ready for time trials. Um, we looked into getting gravel bikes for some variety. But the cycling industry kind of blew up when all this started happening because gyms were closed. So people were getting bikes to exercise outside and I can't find a gravel bike. <laughs> so if you know someone, let me know. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. I, let me think about it. I don't know if I do or not. Do you have, we've talked a lot about pain. I mean, we've talked about pain throughout this whole thing. And as, as we're wrapping up, do you have... Do you have a message for people? Like, can you take your story and and help other people to, to one, break through the pain, but two, not grind themselves into dust or themselves into dust? You have to have learned something along the way, I'm sure, right? Oh, yeah. I think if I were to try to answer this in a way that got 
grew to 17 year old Sam. <laughs> and I think that's the best way I can kind of think about it is I would have liked to know that there's a difference between the types of pain earlier than I did and knowing that there is good pain and then there is bad pain and that bad pain is bad pain for a reason and that you're not supposed to keep being in that kind of pain and to ask for help even if you don't know how to get out, I guess. I feel like for me, the biggest hurdle I had when it came to pain management is knowing that I didn't have to do it alone. And I think for me, it's a little bit more of a, also a disability thing because I kind of equate some of that bad pain and dealing with the bad pain to, I don't want to be a burden to somebody else. So for me, knowing that I could ask for help and being okay if somebody said no, but knowing that I could ask for help was the way to go in the first place. And, and to not be so hard on myself, like to not put myself through that much pain, honestly, because at that point, it's not just physical pain, it's mental pain, because then you're just digging yourself further in the hole. So for me, I feel like knowing that it was okay to ask for help, knowing that there's a difference between the two, and not being so hard on myself would have been the three best things I could have learned earlier rather than later. That is great. That is awesome. And, and great advice for people, I think, and, and really useful. What about the flip side of it? Can you help people push through that good pain? Can you, can you give them something that's going to, if they, they have this big goal and they want to do that 40 minute climb that you're doing, can, can you help them to, to just say, it's going to be great. You're going to love it when you get to the top. I mean, what is the, what's the, what's the message? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I think I still have to work on that one because I feel like for me, I've always been kind of stubborn and determined and I'm going to do it and it's going to feel great. And I kind of like that. Like, I know I'm a little crazy. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> um, I, right now, I think that knowing that giving it your best is the benefit of going through the pain is probably the best thing that I can think of advice-wise. Like for- and Is that like a pride thing? Like, like where no, you take more pride in yourself or- I don't know that I would call it pride. I think I would call it confidence, but I would more so call it like yeah, probably, because I'm proud of myself when I go hard and I push myself past a, a hurdle. But I think the more that I push myself through that good pain and push myself to be better than I was yesterday or better than I was last week, then I see that I can do it. And I see that I can do more than just the sport. I can do something else that I think is hard, but I can try. But at the same time, like, I feel like a lot of people stop themselves from pushing themselves past that point because they're afraid to fail at it. And I think that's a whole different, a whole different conversation. Well, in, in some ways, I think of it as putting yourself in a position to surprise yourself, which then brings you back the next day and you're like, oh, I found something new. Like, this is great. Like, it's, it's, not, it's not the same grind. It's okay. Yesterday I did this and I'm wondering if I can do that and possibly even do that better today. So you get that build and that, that excitement that really makes your training worthwhile, purposeful and fun. Yeah. I, I think that the, the hardest part of that is that it's so individualistic that you just have to be willing to do it and, so, and find ways that work for you. Something that works for you or something that works for somebody else might not work for another person. Like for me, one of the tricks I have from rowing that I use still to this day in cycling is counting down distances because I like the numbers. So for me, 
I can almost get lost in the pain because I'm focused on something else. But that might not work for somebody else unless, so they have to find something that works for them. So I feel like it's so individualistic that it's more mindset than anything else. Because we can do so much more. We can do so much more than we think we can. And I feel like the, the wall and the hurdles are when you start telling yourself you can't. Because then it's true. Right. Then you've decided I can't, I can't do that. And you're, you're going to be completely right when that's the case. But, but, you but are, what happens when you can and you show yourself that you can. Exactly. And you're talking about different strategies of approaching this where you're approaching your fitness and going, okay, can I count down? Can I do, can I do, can I do math in my, in my head? Because then that's distracting me or, you know, whatever it is, or get into the rhythm of it. Or, I mean, there's so many different, different tactics or, or almost, you know, I mean, it's almost like your breathing can get to be, can get to be like, uh, you know, just uh, uh, where, where, where you're, you're meditating basically, right. you know, right. so you can get a lot of this stuff. This is, this is absolutely awesome. We are looking forward to seeing you in Tokyo, which right now it is August of 2021, right? Uh, yeah, starting at the end of August and going into September, but we will, we will see how these things go. I think we have, uh, we have some, we have some more questions to answer in the interim between then, between now and then. But Sam, thanks so much. It's always a pleasure. Give Andrew our best and tell him, tell him to try to see if he can stay in front of you. But it sounds like that doesn't work all that well for him. <laughs> we will. We will. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's always fun to talk to you and catch up and just talk about life and hurdles and strategies and yeah. ways to sell. Exactly. Now for the audience, this recording will be on the One Revolution page. So if you want to watch it in its entirety tomorrow, you can do that. It will also be on YouTube. So on the One Revolution channel, so you can go, so it's just O-N-E, Revolution, and uh, in, on, on YouTube, and you can watch the whole thing. And actually we have, I think this is now the sixth one of these that, that we've done. So, so super exciting. And so thanks a lot, Sam. Have a great day and continue to train hard and have fun. Will do. Have a good thanks night. A Take care.